Hello, friends. Can you see me now? Can you hear me now? How are you doing? Woohoo! For those of you who don't know me, my name is Summer Day. Super nice to meet you. I am a speaker, an author, and a coach, and I shift women out of fear into faith so they can be bold, unstoppable force for God. That's what I do. And um, I'm a published author. This year, I, in the last year, I led over 6,000 women in reading the Bible cover to cover in a year. And we actually produced a journal this year that leads women cover to cover to read the Bible because it did not exist yet. This is our Fear Into Faith podcast that we are creating. And we're so excited that we are able to find women to interview that have incredible stories of how they've shifted out of fear and into faith. And so tonight I get to bring on the incredible Rachel Bruno. And y'all are going to love her story. Oh, my Lanta. So let me bring her on here just really quick. I feel like I should have thunderous applause. Ah, Everyone applaud. So (laughs) many of you have attended our uh, live event or you've attended our virtual events. You know that I have a huge heart for trafficking. And you know that we have done several workshops called What Trafficking Is and What It's Not. And our Fear and Faith community raised over $178,000 last year for trafficking. Um, Rachel is here to talk about a whole nother level of, uh, of stuff that maybe you, you don't know about. Okay. So, Rachel, hi. Hello, Thank you for being here. How are you? <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Hello, Hello girls, ladies. <laughs> Okay, so Rachel, first question is just tell us a little bit about yourself, like where you're from, are you married, do you have kids? Yes, ma'am, I am married to my husband of 18 years. I have two boys, eight and six, David and Lucas. I am also an author and a speaker. I have my new book coming out in March. It's called Fractured Hope, and you will get to hear what I have to say today and a whole lot more in that book. <laughs> Fabulous. I heard you're, you don't just have boys. I heard they're one, adorable, and two, extremely energetic. Can you confirm yes, or deny very much so. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I have two girls. I have two, no, I have three girls, but we're really hoping for a boy, so... Okay, now I know this the big story that you're going to share is about your son, which I don't think many of the women that are going to be on here know about. And I'm still just floored about the story about your son. And you kind of walk us through that big story and what happened. Absolutely. So let's backtrack a little bit here, just a little bit about what got me into this situation. You know, I have epilepsy. I have seizures. And I have had them since I was about five years old. And one of the main triggers of my episodes are sleep deprivation or interrupted sleep. So all of us moms out there know that if you have a baby, you ain't sleeping. (laughs) So my doctor, (laughs) yeah, my doctor at the time highly recommended I get somebody help me with the night shift so that I could at least get those eight hours of sleep. So with my firstborn, you know, the grandmas were all happy. First grandbaby, they were over at my house. Everybody did their shifts and it was amazing. It was awesome. Then second time around, my mom is like, I'm too old for this. (laughs) (laughs) She's honest, right? She was honest. And my mother-in-law said the same thing. But my two moms gathered their money and they gave me the best gift ever, which was money to hire a nanny. I'm like, oh my gosh, I love you. (laughs) (laughs) The gift that keeps on going. Yes. So I went out, interviewed a bunch of people, finally settled on one who I could afford and who was willing to do the night shift. She started watching my son when he was about seven days old. And this is my second son, Lucas. When he was about seven weeks old, I woke up to him screaming at about four o'clock in the morning. And I look at the clock, you know, 4.06, I figure a diaper change, feeding, something to that extent. Then he stops crying. A few minutes go by, he starts screaming again. Then he stops, then it starts again. You know, this goes on for a few minutes. Then I finally, you know, I get up, I go 
down the hallway. She had the door partially opened. She had him swaddled inside the crib. And she was kind of like waddling him back and forth and shushing him in his ear, trying to settle him down. And he was not having it. I mean, he was screaming. She picks him up, puts him like in the burp position. And at this point, he stopped screaming. But he was still like making weird faces, really uncomfortable. So I walk in, I open, I fling the door open and I walk in, I ask her, you know, anything happen? And she shows me the empty bottle and she says, I just fed him and he's really gassy. And I said, okay, you know, fair enough. Babies get gassy. And at this point, I'm home alone. My husband is on a business trip out of state. I have my 20 month old son, David, who was sleeping right across the hall. And I have the screaming seven week old baby. You know, so I tell her he's obviously not settling down. I'm already awake. So, you know, why don't you just go home early? I'll take it from here. So she did walked out and I unswaddle him, take off his clothes, look for any rashes, look for any leakage anywhere, his ears, his nose, you know, anything that you can think of when you have a newborn baby and nothing. I couldn't find any external signs. So I gave him skin to skin on my chest and he sort of calmed down. He fell asleep. I'm like, okay, no, you just wanted your mommy. I must have dozed off as well. At about three hours later, seven o'clock, I just hear the screaming again. I'm like, okay, okay, you know, last feeding, four o'clock, seven o'clock, you're hungry. I tried to nurse him and he would not latch. You know, I never had any issues before. He was just super fussy, crying, but I'm kind of jaded at this point. You know, she said, gassy, so I'm thinking colic nursing strike, you know, anything, what's wrong with this kid? Mm -hmm. Six hours later, nonstop crying, he would not eat. I could not lay the kid down. Like anytime I lay him down, he would just start screaming. And if I held him, he was okay. So I'm, I have no idea what's going on. I just know something is wrong. I call my mom, I'm like, mom, can you please come over here so I can take this kid to the pediatrician? I don't know what's wrong. So she comes over, I call the pediatrician and the receptionist says she wouldn't be available until three o'clock that afternoon. Like he's been screaming since four o'clock this morning. He's not eating, he's not sleeping. I need to see somebody. And she says, okay, then take him to the emergency room. Okay, let's go. So I hop in the car, my mom, my 20 month old son, David, seven week old Lucas and me start driving. And as you know, kids love sleeping in the car. You know, as soon as we get in that car, He falls asleep, no more crying, show up to the hospital. And I'm like, okay, great. No overreactive mom here with the newborn to the emergency room, get to the receptionist, tell her the symptoms. She takes me out back and the doctor comes probably about five minutes later. And he tells me to lay my son down on the bed. And then he walks away. He starts going towards the door. And I'm like, okay, great. I'm probably going to tell me to give the kid Benadryl and send me home. But he stops right there at the doorway. And he is just laser focused, like staring at my son. The room is in complete silence. I'm like, this is weird. And he's looking. And then he starts walking towards my son. And he goes right on his head behind his left ear. He says, did you feel this? I said, no. He grabs my hand. He makes me touch it. Like, you feel that bulge? I said, yeah. He said, that's fluid that's leaking from his brain. Okay, what does that mean? Like, it could be spinal cerebral fluid or it can be blood. We need to go do a CT scan right now to see what's going on. And as soon as he says that, about 10 people rush into that room. And they are sticking probes on him. They are sticking tubes on him. You know, they're raising the rails up. I'm holding him. And they are just running down the hallway to the CT room. And as we're running down the hallway, his right arm starts twitching. Then the nurses bolt. I mean, they are running. And I'm like, is this normal? She looks at me, no. Then it, ah, I have seizures. Left side of the brain, right arm twitching. He's having a seizure. And first thing that came to my mind is, oh, my God, I gave it to my son, right? It's genetic. And I said a little prayer for him right there. I'm like, God, please spare my son from having to live with this like I did. Get to the CT room, wait for the results. The doctors call me, take me into the back room. Says, Mrs. Bruno, this is very serious. Like, okay. Like the fluid that's leaking is blood. And the brain hates blood. It's a cranial fracture and an intracerebral blood hemorrhage. 
and I'm in shock. Like I went from gassy baby to now my son has blood leaking from his brain and we're gonna go into brain surgery and he's giving me all the papers to sign. Are you against blood transfusions? I'm like, I don't care what you have to do to my son to save him, save him. So they wheel off my seven week old baby into the operating room and I'm there with my mom, my 20 month old son bouncing off the walls, texting my husband who's in West Virginia at this point. I was in California. And I'm telling him, you know, our son just went to the emergency room, operating room, pray. I don't know what the heck is going on. Four hours go by and the surgeon comes back. Vincent Sprano, and yes, like everything went well clinically. As far as we're concerned, you know, we were able to drain the blood. We were able to fix the fracture. I'm like, okay, is he going to be okay? Is he going to be brain damaged? And he looked at me. We really don't know, you know, due to his young age. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't even know whether he's going to survive the next 48 hours. He's currently in a medically induced coma because of all the seizures he started having after the surgery. So until we find the right cocktail to control those seizures, it's best that we have him in this state. But he is stable. I will take you upstairs to pick you. So again, you know, I'm just receiving all this and I don't think my brain is even processing it, right? I'm just like in a haze, in a total haze with God, right? I'm like, God, what is this? What is going on? I don't know what's going on. And I'm just going through the motions on autopilot, right? I get to that hospital room and my son is there seemingly lifeless, right? He has gauze wrapped all over his head. He has tubes coming out of every orifice you can imagine. If you've ever been in an intensive care unit, you know, all glass, you hear the machines beeping, it's freezing, it's cold. And I just hold that baby's hand and I pray again. And I say, God, I don't care if I have to dedicate the rest of my life to taking care of my son. I will, you know, just don't take him away from me. And at that point, the peace that surpasses all understanding, right? I felt the Holy Spirit in that moment tell me he's mine. I gave him to you. Nobody's going to take him away from you. And uh, you're right, God. He is yours. And there's no better place for him to be right now than in your hands. So I surrender my son's life to you. And I closed that prayer, turned around. There's my mom. There's my son. I go into logistics mode, right? I'm like, I'm obviously not leaving the hospital tonight. Got to get my son home somewhere. My husband is on his way from the airport, still not back in California. I call my friend, come pick up my son. He goes off happy as a doodle bug that he's going to spend the night at grandma's house and get away with murder. (laughs) Give him a kiss. And I'll see you tomorrow. So sit there in the room. Next thing I know, hear a knock on the door. And it's a police officer and a lady in a uniform or a lady with a clipboard. The man in the uniform and a lady with a clipboard. He slides the door open like, Miss Bruno, can we speak to you? He said, yeah. Weird. What is a cop doing here? Then the first words out of his mouth, what happened to your son? was worse than getting struck in the head by a bullet. Will you help us figure out how this happened to your son? We wanna help you. And at this point, I'm like, okay, like you wanna help me? So obviously he knows it was the nanny, right? Or you know, you're accusing this woman of having tried to kill my son, you know, being struck in the head by a bullet. So I sit down, you know, and I talk to them. I tell them the whole saga from four o'clock in the morning. And the social worker asked me, do you have any other children? I said, I do. What are their names, their ages? I tell her, she's like, is it okay if we go see him? Now, by this point, it's around nine o'clock at night. And I say, he's probably asleep by now. And she's like, we're not gonna wake him. We just wanna make sure he's okay. So again, my mindset, you know, I have nothing to hide. These people are here to help me. So I call my mom, tell her social worker's on her way. She leaves. And the police officer stays with me and questions me about my husband. Where's your husband? Like he's coming back from his business trip. And are you willing to wait until the detectives get here? They would like to speak to you as well. 
So this whole time I'm texting my husband and he's like, you know, let's cooperate, cooperate, cooperate. I'm like, okay, yes, of course. So I tell him, okay, yes, I'll wait for the detectives. So he puts me in a room waiting for the detectives. My husband shows up to the hospital straight from the airport. Police officer takes him to another room, starts questioning him. You know, in hindsight, we can kind of see what's going on. But in that moment, I really had no idea that I was ever the prime suspect in this whole story. And that what was really going on was a child abuse investigation. And we had no idea, right? So the detectives come, they interview me until two o'clock in the morning. You remember, I've been up since four o'clock in the morning with my son crying. It's now two o'clock in the morning the next day. And I tell them, you know, I really need to go to sleep. You know, if you want to continue this, we can do this later on, but I need to sleep. They were very friendly, gave me their business cards, told me to call them. I go to bed, you know, my husband sees me, tells me to go to bed. I wake up at about 10 o'clock and I just see my husband staring at me like this blank stare on his face. And my first instinct, you know, look at the baby, like he's alive, you know, what, what happened? What's going on? And my husband tells me they took David. Like, what do you mean they took David? Who, where? We don't know. Social services showed up at your mom's house two o'clock in the morning and they took David. I'm like, they lied to me. Like she said she wasn't even gonna wake him up. And I call my mom and I'm like, what, what just happened? What, what happened? And my poor mom, you know, she tells me they came here two o'clock in the morning, three police cars, a bunch of armed officers into our house. They walked through the house, opened the refrigerator, saw that we had food, asked where David was sleeping. I showed her, she turns on the light. David wakes up all happy, ready to play. She asked me to undress him, I did. She looked, there were no bruises, no scars or any signs of abuse. And then she turns around and she tells me we're taking him. My mom's like, no, you're not. And she's like, if you don't give him to us, you're gonna get arrested. Now, all the police officers are right there and they don't say a word. My mom's like, okay, if I go to jail, do I take him with me? And she's like, no, he's gonna go to foster care. And you're not gonna be able to care for him because you're gonna have a criminal record. So two o'clock in the morning, my dad is calling lawyers. Of course, nobody answers the phone. My mom is trying to talk them out. And at this point, I was asleep at the hospital. My husband was actually on the phone with the social worker and crying his eyes out, telling them, you do not have permission to do this. You cannot do this. And I'm sorry, sir, I'm calling for backup. You know. And at this point, my son is noticing all the commotion. My mom is noticing all the commotion. And we don't, we don't know what to do. Like, I don't know what to do. I have a bunch of police officers here saying that I'm gonna get arrested and that I'm gonna go to jail and that my grandson is gonna go to foster care. What am I supposed to do? So she gives my son to the social worker and they drive off into the middle of the night, not telling us where, why, what, nothing. So it's 10 o'clock the next morning, <coughs> excuse me. And my husband is calling social services. They won't answer. I start calling lawyers. I had to call about 10 different lawyers until I finally found one that knew what was going on and would be willing to take my case. I go to his office that afternoon and I'm like, where is my son and where do I go get him? And he tells me, sit down. Like, you have no idea what you're in for. I'm like, what are you talking about? I didn't do this. He's like, oh, I believe you. Doesn't matter. I'm like, what do you mean doesn't matter? Like, they can't just take my kid? Like, oh yeah, they can. I'm like, what happened to Constitution? What happened to innocent until proven guilty? What happened, what about the nanny? He says, this is family court. They don't follow constitutional law. And I'm like, what other law is there? And he says, they can do whatever they deem is in the best interest of the child. I'm like, how is it in the best interest of my son to be taken away at two o'clock in the morning and taken to, you know, then I start ranting basically to him. And this lawyer is like the godfather, okay? A big Italian burly man. <laughs> and I mean, he pounds his fist on the table and he says, listen to me, what happened to your son 
is criminal. You are facing 15 years in jail and a $100,000 bail if they decide to charge you. You are not getting your kids back. I'm like, what, what are you talking about? Criminal, what? And it's like, I know where your son is. I know where your son is, okay? Your saving grace is that your husband was out of state when this happened. So legally speaking, he wasn't even at the crime scene. If I go into that courtroom and I argue for the judge to give the children back to you, social services is gonna show the judge, look, there's a criminal case opened against this mother. The sibling is at risk. They're gonna say you're putting the children at risk. They are not gonna give the kids back to you. They're gonna go to foster care and they're under two years old and nonverbal. They can be legally adopted by the foster family if the case lasts longer than six months. Wow, and they I didn't know that. Yes, and they will make it last longer than six months. Wow, okay, I did not know that. Say that again. So because they were under two and nonverbal. Right. Say that for again. They can be legally adopted by the foster family if the case lasts longer than six months. Which of course it would. They will make it last longer <laughs> than six months. And I'm, I'm just like, what what just happened, right? Like, first, not, I'm a criminal. Now my kids are going to get adopted. Now, like, what is going on? And he says, we're going to ask the judge to give sole custody to your husband. That way they don't even risk going into foster care. But if the judge grants that, they're going to kick you out of the house. And at this point, what choice did I have? Right? I'm like, leave my kids alone. Like, you could do whatever you want to me. Leave my kids alone. So that was the plan. You know, I go back to the hospital. I tell my husband all this. My mom, my family who's in Brazil. No, that's where originally we're from, both my husband and I. And my friends in America, I mean, everybody is horrified. Like, what is going on? This can't happen. This, this cannot be happening. I'm like, that's what the lawyer said is going to happen. You know, he told me to get as many character letters as I can before the 72-hour hearing, which is in three days. He told me to go enroll in child abuse, parenting, and individual counseling. Those are the three services that they're going to require as part of your plan to get the kids back. So it was almost like a plea deal, you know, as if I was going as somebody who'd gotten a DUI and going up to the judge and saying, I've already enrolled in, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous. I've already done this. I've already done that. <laughs> so I start doing all these things and we get to the 72 hour hearing and I'm thinking it's going to be at least like Judge Judy. Right. You know, there's a judge there. Ask one side this, ask this side this, you know, some back and forth. And when I get there. Nobody is there but me and my husband. The nanny's not there. The social workers aren't there. The police officers aren't there. The detectives aren't there. The nanny isn't there. Nobody is on trial but me. So the lawyers start talking their legalese, and I'm just waiting. You know, when is the judge going to ask me what happened? When is it my turn? You know, next thing I hear my name, Miss Bruno, do you object? Like, no, what? Like, do you object to the children being sent home with their father? No. And he goes around the room. Children's lawyers, do you object? No. Social services, do you object? Yes. Why? Because we never spoke to the father, so we don't know whether he's fit or not. So at this point, court goes into recess, and we all leave the, the room. And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, like this is not happening. This is not happening. We are just all in that hallway praying. I mean, everybody praying. My mom and my dad were outside, my neighbors were outside and we're text messaging. Everybody just start praying. My lawyer goes back in there. I don't know what he did or what he said. He comes back out, we go back in and the judge says overruled. Children will go be with their father Mrs. Bruno, you have 24 hours to vacate your home. A caseworker will be contacting you regarding visitation. Court is adjourned. And I just hug my mom. I mean, we leave that courtroom bawling, 
you know, all of us still in disbelief, you know, and some little bit of doubt in my mind, you know, why God, why, <laughs> why is this? No, you're, you are faithful. This is not right. After all the praying we did, you know, to open these people's eyes, this is not right. And again, you always hear that little voice of the spirit, right? Mm-hmm. Be still and know that I am God. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And I'm there with my lawyer, you know, again, Mr. Godfather, I told you this was going to happen. I'm like, I know, <laughs> I know. He's like, go, go to your house right now. Get everything out of your house. You do not leave one toothbrush in that house. Okay. They're going to come over to your house. They're going to look inside your closets. They're going to look underneath the bathroom sink. They're going to look under everything. You don't leave one trace of yourself in that house. I'm like, okay, go home, unpack everything. And I'm like, okay, where am I supposed to go now? Like my whole family's in Brazil. I'm an only child. They would not let me live with my mom because she was with my son when he was seized. So he was, she was part of the investigation. And I, well, what am I supposed to do? He's like, well, the hospital is a monitored facility. As long as your son is, is there, they can't kick you out. So you can sleep in the hospital. I'm like, okay. So <laughs> I went to go to the hospital and I spent about two nights in the hospital. My mom went to our church and my pastor was in Oxford writing a book. So it was just his wife. And she asked his wife if she would come to the hospital and pray for us. So she did, you know, she showed up at like 10 o'clock at night, you know, visiting hours were over. She had a little clergy badge and we all start laughing. <laughs> so she comes and gives me a hug and she looks at my son, you know, we pray for him. And then she looks at me and she says, I've been praying. And God told me you're coming home with me. Awesome. So, <laughs> I'm wow. like, I'm speechless. I'm like, thank you. you no, know, like I knew the I knew them, but we wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't call them intimate friends. You know, she basically invited a stranger into her house. But every step of the way, God sent somebody to be with me. I was never alone. Of course, I was never alone with him, but he always sent me a brother or a sister or somebody to be with me along this way. So I went to her house and she prayed with me. She cried with me. She laughed with me. I couldn't have asked for a better friend at that time. And while all this was going on, you know, I was court ordered to take that child abuse class. And I'm thinking, what the heck am I going to do in a child abuse class? Like, I'm going to be in there with a bunch of child abusers, domestic violence, tattooed, pierced up, drunk people, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And when I get there, everybody is in the same boat that I was. Oh, yeah. Well, that would make sense. Oh, my God. Right. And I'm listening to their stories. And I'm like, what? Like there were bath time accidents, there were park swing accidents, there were a 15 year old posting naked pictures of herself on Instagram. Her dad disciplines her, then he gets arrested and goes to jail and all the other four children are taken away. And I'm like, what is going on here? And the facilitators, you know, the people that were giving these child abuse classes, they're like nodding, yeah, yeah. They would complete my sentences for me. Like, yeah, I took my son to the hospital. Oh, Dr. Wong. Yeah. And, you know, my caseworker said, blah, blah, blah. Oh, Jennifer Hockenettle. Yeah. (laughs) And the child abuse expert diagnosed non-accidental blood force trauma. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm like, what? This happens? Like, this is normal? And they're like, yeah, this happens all the time. And I'm like, why, why? And they would like roll their eyes at me. You know, they would say, you'll, you'll, you'll find out, you'll see. And, you know, I go home, Dr. Google, you know, start like, what, what is this? What is going on? Yeah, now, a little backtrack. I just want to say for people tuning in. Um, yes. 
somebody put a bo- abuse gunshot. So your kid wasn't actually shot, right? That was not no. what happened no. to your son. Um, but she is talking about how her son got taken away when he was in the hospital. And I'm so glad that you're sharing this. I I actually had a two-year-old break her leg and had child services at my door, I think, within 48 hours when my daughter broke her leg. Um, and this is not the first story that I have heard firsthand of something like this. It is a reality that I've known about for years. I actually had a foster brother when I was growing up. And I knew stuff with his story. This was, you know, decades ago of stuff that was kind of crazy for me to wrap my head around. So for those of you tuning in, if you're having your mind blown, you can do your own research. Rachel's 100% being honest with her real story, which I'm proud of you. I mean, you're naming names, girlfriend. You are bold and courageous. And I'm so grateful that you're willing to share this story publicly because most people don't know this most people don't know that this is real this is not a far conspiracy theory over here this is real this is real stuff i have tons of stories that i have um talked to the people or somebody like you so this is not surprising to me but it's so hurtful it's so hurtful that that's a reality now maybe it's not everywhere some of you are like that doesn't happen where I live. Great if it doesn't happen where you live. But Rachel and I are both from California and both have stories, firsthand stories of things like this that um, have happened. So it is real, maybe not where you live, but go do your research. Well, you know, and I would say it is real nationwide because what funded this or what propelled this into existence is called the Adoptions and Safe Families Act also known as ASFA, and it was signed into law by Bill Clinton in 1993, which basically gives federal money to the states for every child that is placed in foster care. So the states get anywhere from $2,000 to $8,000 per child per month. Okay, now there are currently 435,000 children in foster care right now. Now, can you imagine how much money that is, right? You know, I mean, it's millions, millions of dollars, and everybody gets a little slice of the pie. All the experts in family court, you know, the psychologists, the mandated reporters, the social workers, the judges, the public defenders, everybody gets a little piece of the pie. And if there are not enough children in the system, then the federal funding gets cut. So these people are basically having to justify their existence, justifying their jobs. I did talk to a social worker a few years ago, and she said that half the calls that they actually get are probably not real, where the person is totally innocent. And they have to investigate. So it's kind of on both sides, too. There's a whole shady side where it's super easy to just pick up a phone and call. And somebody yeah. like you can end up in jail first because they're not, yeah. not in. And that happens all of the time. She said at least 50% of the cases she goes out on, she knows are bogus. Like 50%. How has this happened? How is this level of corruption now the way that it is? It clearly is a very broken system, which is sad for the the victims that are actually really being abused and all that kind of stuff as well. The whole system is overtaxed. It is crazy. It's so sad. And in that child abuse class, there was probably about 20 to 30 of us in there. Three of us got our kids back. Oh, my gosh. Stop. Like at all, ever? It took somebody that I know that I'm still in touch with, took three years for her to get hers back. And I have another one who is my friend. She had the same lawyer I did, the same caseworker I did, the same attorney I did, the same hospital that I took my son to. And her parental rights were terminated in October of 2018. After how long was she fighting it? For three years. And then it was terminated. Oh my God. And then it was terminated. And I mean, it, it, her situation is horrific. You know, one of the big reasons I do what I do is because of her story. 
No, I'm like, I am no different than her. Like, I am not a better parent than her. I'm not a better person than her. I am not better in any other way, shape, or form. You know, and it was simply by the grace of God that I got my children back. 27 out of 30 parents did not get their kids back. I can't wrap my head around that right now. Um, Let's get to the part uh, you were getting into what you had to do. We know you got your son back. How long was that? What was the time frame? So very interestingly, I was from the moment I was kicked out of the house until the moment I was allowed to move back in was 40 days and 40 nights. <gasps> oh my God. You were yes. like in the wilderness with the Lord for 40 yes. days and 40 nights. Oh my gosh. It was insane. We have a a whole bunch of people chiming in about this kind of stuff happening where they're from. Um, From what I know, let me ask you this question. Most of the stories I know are connected to the hospital. Yeah. Were most of those 30 connected to the hospital or stories that you know of? A lot of them were what they call medical kidnapping, right? When the child does have some sort of injury and you take them to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the doctors are mandated reporters and that's what happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We had a dear friend with medical kidnapping in Utah and then they came back to California and basically if the dad stepped foot in Utah, they would just arrest him. And right. that was a crazy medical kidnapping. Medical kidnappings yeah. are real, my friend. And if you they want are. to look that up, it is very, <coughs> very real and extremely crazy and disheartening and evil. Yeah. Very, very evil. It's so scary. I'm like, uh, what are we, what are we uh, supposed to do? <laughs> and so, okay. So yeah, parents run out of money fighting for their children. Oh, so they crazy. Do. And so 40 days and 40 nights and you got him back. How was, so his, we had a hearing. was his recovery? We, we had a hearing on that 40th day, just so you know. And my attorney told me to not come to court that day. He said, the status of your investigation is still open. The criminal investigation is still open. Nothing has changed. So don't waste your time. I won't waste mine. And I tell my husband, I'm like, he's been right all along. And my husband says, I don't care what he says, we're gone. And I'm like, fine, let's go. So we head on to the courthouse and we're just sitting outside the hallway, outside of room 23. That was our courtroom. And an hour and a half later, he calls me, my attorney. He's like, where are you? Like I'm at the courthouse. He's like, okay, I'm on my way. Might be able to do something today. And he hangs up on me. <laughs> and again, start texting everybody. I'm like, I don't know what's gonna happen. Something's gonna happen today. Everybody start praying. I see him walking down the hallway. I go hug him. He pushes me away. He's like, don't hug me yet. I can't make you any promises. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> so he goes into the courtroom comes back sign this initial this my sign i initial like i have no idea what i'm signing or what i'm initialing i am just trusting god at this point wow back and forth back and forth i never again i never go into that courtroom i never say a word in that courtroom it's just my lawyer coming in and out in and out for about three hours and then he comes back with a stack of papers about 700 pages And he's like, if you're willing to sign this the way it is written, okay, there's nothing in here admitting guilt. There's nothing in here saying that you did this. It's just the social worker's narrative, the timeline, the medical records, the investigation. If you're willing to sign this today, they will let you go home today. Now at this point, I mean, if they told me to cut my leg off, I would have done it, right? Yeah. And I signed those papers. He went in there, he comes back and he tells me, I've been doing this for 23 years and I have never seen them let anybody go home before trial. You definitely have a higher power working for you. Wow. <laughs> oh my God. Okay, and this from my arrogant godfather <laughs> lawyer. <laughs> oh, I forgot to grab tissue for this interview. I know. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Wow. And I said, yes, I do. (sighs) Praise God. (laughs) Okay. So two things. One, just what was those 40 days like? I can't even imagine 40 days away from my kids. 
it was, oh God, it was probably one of the most painful 40 days of my life. And it was challenging, you know, so many challenges. The legal side, the emotional side, the spiritual side, the marital side. There was so many moving parts, you know, and throughout this whole thing, when my children did go home to my husband, my husband and I owned our own business at this time. Now, my husband is a cybersecurity engineer. I have an MBA from Pepperdine University. I was handling the the business aspect. He was handling the the techie side. And then everything gets flipped upside down. How's my husband going to run a business with a 20-month-old and a seven-week-old baby who just had brain surgery? Wow. I had my cousins from Brazil, my cousin and my aunt. My aunt, who has never flown in her life. (laughs) What an angel. Oh my gosh, what an angel. Yes, and she called me and she's like, we're coming. And my cousin, who is a dentist in Brazil, she said, I'll tell all my patients to go to my friends. I don't care, we're coming. Wow. Wow. (laughs) So during this painful desert, look at these little glimpses of light, right? And of hope that God is just showing me, I am here, right? I am taking care of you. I am not going to leave you. I will not forsake you, right? All those little Bible verses that we grew up knowing just start popping in your head. And obviously like, okay, so our channel is called Fear into Faith, right? Yes. How much did faith play a part in those 40 days? Everything, like a million percent. You know, even at that first night in the hospital, when the doctor told me, we don't know whether your son is going to survive the next 48 hours. Yeah. And I remember my mom, my mom was there with me. She's like, don't listen to the doctors, Rachel. Yeah. No, God is the doctor of doctors. Amen. He's going to be okay. Amen. And Um, today my son is six years old. No brain damage. First grade reading, writing, thriving. Oh, awesome. <laughs> that's what they wanted to know. They're like, what happened? Yes, <laughs> I know. <laughs> what was his recovery like? Well, he was on anti-epileptic medication for about one year following the surgery. Mm-hmm. And he did have reconstruction, cranial reconstruction when he was two years old. I could put my thumb in his head and feel his brain pulsing. It was craziest thing, you know, and the doctor's like, you know, he's probably going to be okay. It will eventually close. I'm like, okay, but I'm not sending my son to school with a hole in his head. So (laughs) we did the cranial reconstruction. He did physical therapy when he was about nine months old. He started, no, when he was about four months old, he started doing physical therapy. Wow. And even that, I mean, I remember, you know, he couldn't, he was always fisting his right hand. He couldn't open his hand. And that's all it started, right? Putting a ball in his hand. Wow and getting him to open his hand (laughs) and then put the ball here, get him to pass the ball from one hand to the other. And I'm doing these exercises with him at home and I'm bawling, right? As I'm doing these (laughs) with him. (laughs) And I'm like, my baby, right? My perfect baby that God gave me is now going through this. (laughs) And your mommy heart, yeah. No, but God gives you strength to go through it. Yeah. To go through it. And to praise him. You know, and today, every day I look at that boy, I can't help but praise God. And but be grateful and thankful. And when I look at my son David, I mean I haven't talked about David, but when David was seized, right? Illegally seized at two o'clock in the morning. They took him to the county children's shelter, to the homeless shelter, basically. And he spent 48 hours for two nights in that shelter. And we had no idea what they had put him through. We only found out after our case was closed, after we sued the department, which we did, and we won, just so people know. But through discovery, we found out that they had given David 13 vaccinations without our consent, 13 at once. 
Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> they forced him through a full skeletal survey, which are basically pictures of all the bones in your body. And I mean, you have to sit still, right? I mean, can you imagine a 20 month old with strangers laying in that hospital bed, trying to take images of his body? Oh my! They gosh. gave him an anal wink test, which is for sexual abuse when there weren't even any allegations of sexual abuse. And, you know, we're finding all this out. I'm like, that is child abuse. Yeah. Right? What you people just did to my son. I'm like, you could have killed my son just with the vaccines alone. Right? Mm -hmm. And the trauma that my poor son went through. I mean, my son rejected me for probably about a year, even after I was allowed to go back home. Oh, and he just kept, you know, pushing me away, saying, I don't want you, mommy. I don't want you. I want to go be with my grandma because she's the one who took him out of the shelter. They allowed my mom to pick him up because she was a public school teacher. She was already fingerprinted. She was a mandated reporter. And I had to work through that again with God and the Holy Spirit. Wow. You know, I'm like, I'm building a wall against my son. You know, he's two years old, but those words hurt. Yeah. And I'm like, God, you know, I know he's the victim. Like, I'm the victim too. You know, I didn't, I didn't want this. Yeah. And again, Holy Spirit, I know you are, but you're the grown up in this situation. <laughs> yeah. Right? So put on your big panties, put on your big girl panties. <laughs> Wow. And go talk to him. I'm like, go talk to him. Isn't it too soon? Like, will he even know what I'm talking about? And like, yeah, he will. I got that nudge. And I sat down with him one day. And I said, do you remember when your auntie came to take care of you? And the first words out of his mouth, why did you leave? Oh. He knew. <laughs> he remembered. And I got the pictures on my phone. I showed him the pictures of his brother. And I'm like, look, this is what happened to Lucas. And they thought that mommy had done this to him. And he looks at me, you never heard us, mommy. I'm like, I know, I know. But they thought that if mommy did this to him, that I was gonna do this to you. And they just made a really bad choice, David. They just made a really bad choice and we have to forgive them. Okay, the Bible tells us to forgive them. We have to forgive the nanny. We have to forgive the police officers. We have to forgive the detectives. We have to forgive the doctors. We have to forgive the social workers. We have to forgive everybody. Okay, but we're not gonna let them get away with it. We're gonna fight them. And he looked at me, he's like, you gonna hit them, mommy? And I said, yes, we're going to hit them with a pile of papers, <laughs> the pile of papers. <laughs> and from that point on, it was a complete 180 with my son. Okay. All he needed was that closure. Yep. Right. And to know that he wasn't abandoned, that it was never my choice. It was not his father's choice. It was nobody's choice, that it wasn't his fault and that we can fight, right? And he's like, is the nanny gonna go to jail? And I said, I don't know, David. I don't know what's gonna happen, but regardless of what happens, God is the judge. And God is the final judge. And they are all in God's hands, okay? All we can do is pray. That's the most powerful thing we can do is pray. And we thank God that you are home now that your brother is home now, that your brother's not in the hospital, that everything is okay. And whatever God's will will be, will be. Wow. So I filed. That story of your son David is like, oh, I know. So, so I'm like, I didn't think about that. And yes, how yes. traumatic for him. And that serves as a really good example to parents to know like, 
you can have a powerful conversation like that with a little kid and processing that with them um, is very important when they've experienced something that is traumatic. Um, I I had to walk that through with one of my daughters before that was very young. Um, Wow. 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 Um, Praise God. And (laughs) back in 40 days, the shortest time that your attorney had ever seen. I know two questions people have. One is, did you ever find out what happened to him? Was it the nanny? Was it having to do with her? It had to have been the nanny, right? She was the only one who was with him. Now, what did she do? Till this day, we really don't know. No, there were no nanny cams. And the child abuse experts, you know, they call it non-accidental blunt force trauma. And I mean, I can't really picture what like she could have done with a seven week old baby. And I asked the doctor at the hospital who unbeknownst to me was the child abuse expert that was going to be writing the court report to the judge. So I'm asking her all these different scenarios. I'm like, is it possible she dropped him? You know, could she have fallen asleep and, and, and dropped him? We had ceramic tile floors, like they're really hard surfaces. Yeah. And she's like, nope, yeah. can't happen. So I don't know. Wow. I don't know. Okay, so this is amazing. You've obviously been talking about this for a while because he's six years old now. Yeah. So proud of you for talking um, about these things. It's important for people to know. Now that this is behind you, what what advice would you give to parents that are watching on what they can do to not end up in a situation like that? Right. Well, you know, like uh, my lawyer told me, if they're under two years old and nonverbal, right? I think that was really a key in my case specifically because my children couldn't defend themselves. So it was always going to be my word against the doctor's word, basically. And that did not play in my favor at all. <clears throat> but, you know, if you have an older an older child and you do have these kinds of accidents, you know, chances are that if the child can explain themselves, you will be okay for the most part, <laughs> right? But if CPS does ever end up showing up at your house, no warrant, no entry, okay? Yeah. They showed up at my mom's house without a warrant. And we had no idea. You know, we were just in shock. We had no idea what the heck was going on. Mm -hmm. They will use all types of psychological tricks on you, just like they did with my mom, telling her that she was going to be arrested. When my mom had not committed any crimes, they could not have arrested her. Mm, Yeah. Right? Now, I say that doesn't mean that they're not going to go get a warrant. They probably will. They probably will go get a warrant, but it will at least give you some time, right? Even if it's just 24 hours to put your children out of there with somebody that you trust and get yourself a lawyer. That's my third piece of advice. Please get yourself a private attorney. Okay, because unfortunately the public defenders, I'm sure a lot of them mean well, just like a lot of social workers mean well, but they work for the system, right? And they get paid, I believe it's $700 per case. So they just want to get it over with and next. Yeah, clearly. And they are expensive. Okay, my attorney was a $6,000 retainer to start just to hire him for that one hearing. And it was like $350 an hour after that. And my husband had to get separate counsel so that it wouldn't be a conflict of interest. So he also hired and he had another $5,000 retainer. So it is very expensive. But again, these people have your children's lives in their hands. Okay. I mean, sell your car, beg your family, refinance your house, whatever you have to do to get a private attorney, get an attorney. Wow. And if, again, like I was in this, I was innocent, right? I had total right to go in there and say, you know, this is wrong. I stand under my first amendment or, you know, fourth amendment, 14th amendment. These are my rights. Not the time to do it in family court. Okay. I know it's not what people want to hear, 
but it's not the time to do that. Okay. You just gotta swallow your pride and you do whatever the heck these people tell you to do. Okay. I had to take all these classes. I had to take a polygraph. I took a lie detector test. I mean, the most nerve wracking thing I've ever done in my life. (laughs) I had to take a psychiatric evaluation called the MMPI, which is an eight hour long written and verbal, you know, interview type test. Wow. But just, just do it. Okay. Bigger picture in mind that is for your children. They have your children in their hands. And I think wow. that's what I've learned as far as the legal stuff is concerned. And as far as the spiritual battle, you know, you always hear God's grace is enough. God's grace is enough. I'm like, is it really? You know, I always grew up thinking that, you know, imagining Paul in jail and him preaching to the people while he's in jail. I'm like, would I, would you really be able to do that? <laughs> And it turns out that you can, (laughs) you can do that. His grace is enough. Like there during those 40 days and 40 nights, God is all I had. Right. I mean, they took my husband away. They took my house away. They took my children away. They took my job away. I mean, they took everything earthly thing that I had. They took away from me. All I had was God. If it was not for God, I do not know how I would have kept my sanity how I would have survived Mm -hmm. this whole thing without bitterness, without anger, without all those emotions. Not to say that I didn't feel those things at one point. Of course I did. But God cleanses you, right? Give me a clean heart. Mm -hmm. Create in me a clean heart. And I remember just praying, you know, at times at home alone at night, I couldn't sleep. You know, of course I couldn't sleep. I would pick up my Bible and I would read the little books like James, you know, Timothy, the small books that nobody ever bothers to really read because I couldn't sleep. Uh-huh. And, you know, reading James counted yeah. all as joy. And I'm like, wow, oh my God, that's all as joy. <laughs> because perseverance, right? Your perfect faith is faith. incredible. Yes, pers- you perfecting your faith. I'm like, oh my God, this is right. <laughs> this is so true. <laughs> Yeah, and it really hit home. So, um, one more question that I want to just—you know—we raise a lot of money for trafficking, and we talk a lot about trafficking. And some people don't know that there's a tie between the foster care system and trafficking. Yes. Uh, Did you learn anything about that in your journey? Well, you know, after it was all over and I began researching and I was still in touch with all the people from my child abuse class, it makes sense, right? When you have, especially the older ones, you know, you have girls that are 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 and up and they get taken away. I mean, your family, your parents are like your lifeline, right? That's the one thing in life that you're born supposed to trust, and they're supposed to protect you and they're there for you. And out of nowhere, that rug gets pulled out from underneath you. You get thrown in with strangers. If you're lucky, they are amazing strangers and they will love you and they will treat you right. But a lot of the times, especially if you're older, you get placed in a group home, waiting for that forever family to come and adopt you out. In the meantime, some guy, handsome guy, or just some really caring guy comes up to you, tells you everything you've wanted to hear, right? That you're beautiful, that you're loved, yeah. that any guy would be lucky to have you. I really like you, you know, can you want to come to my house and let's do this? Want to come and do that? They start building the trust with you, right? As a child who has had their heart broken who has had their family taken away. And uh, that's how it starts. You know, 87% of sex trafficking victims were once in foster care. Wow. And that's according to Secretary Pompeo's report. Yeah. That's really high. I mean, I know it's high, but that's really high. 
I read that really high. I read that 87% of all trafficking was actually wait, hold on. Let me get this statistic correct. No, 87% of women or men that you see in pornography were drugged, forced, or coerced into it under the age of 18. That's wow. the 87% that I've heard before. Yeah. So, wow, that is uh, way higher than I knew that it was. 87% have been in the foster system at some point. I, 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 there's women in our fear into faith community that have been in the foster system. There's women yeah. in our community that were trafficked out of the foster system. So we already know stories like this before. Yeah. So if you're just watching your mind is blown, welcome. <laughs> the stories yeah. are real and we, we know all uh, well, before we go, you're amazing. <laughs> your voice is powerful. And I pray that God just opens more platforms for you to continue to be a strong voice in this field. Um, tell us what's next for you. Well, like you're, I said, I'm working on my book. Out? Yep. My book is called Fractured Hope. And you can go on my website, rachelbruno.com. It's for pre-order right now. So if you just fill out your form with your email, you'll be the first one to know when it's ready. And, you know, the first ones always get the best, best deals, best offer might be a signed copy. Who knows? <laughs> awesome. So come and sign up for that. And all the money from my book, I want to start a nonprofit. You know, I would love to have a sort of one-stop shop for families who are going through this, okay. where we can have the attorneys to represent these families, where we can provide the services, you know, that social services required in order for planning. Yeah. And I would also love to have some sort of shelter, maybe two to three bedrooms for the moms who wow. have their newborn babies taken. People, I mean, oh my God, I've seen it taken from the delivery room because the mom doesn't have a job or doesn't have a place to live. And they wow. will take that child and give it away. And I can't imagine anything more painful for a woman or for that child to go through. Yep. You know, if I could house these women, if I could offer a monitored facility wow. that would allow them to keep their babies, I mean, that would be, that would be amazing. Well, I want to <laughs> pray for amazing. you before we go. And I want to pray into that for you, which Amen. that thank is you. just so noble and so needed. So thank you so much for that. Ladies, if you just ch ch chimed in, make sure you watch this whole interview from the beginning because Rachel's story is just absolutely unreal of what happened to her and her son and actually both sons um, that are now thriving. Thank you for being so, so, so inspiring. I'm just I'm like floored. I already talked to Rachel and I was like, Rachel, I think you, you might have to be a, a guest speaker at one of our events. So if you ladies want to see Rachel be a guest speaker, of our events, make sure you comment, reach out to us and be like, yes, get Rachel and meet her. Um, but you're such a warrior woman. So thank you for that. And um, ladies, thanks for, for, for tuning in. Uh, join me in praying for Rachel really quick here, okay? So Father God, we just lift Rachel up to you. We ask for you to protect her to send your generals of your of your, of your um, uh, angelic army, Lord, to just surround her and protect her, protect her voice, protect her story, protect her family. And Father God, we just ask for you to raise up this platform for her to be you know, to the voiceless and to open giant doors and to um, just have the funding like fall from the skies. Father God, we just pray for blessing beyond all measure, 12, tenfold, Father God, than anything she's already imagined. Father God, I just ask that this this vision take just incredible deep roots in this next season, Father God. Um, you know that you, <laughs> you revealed to me uh, at least for me, Father God, you said 2022 was going to be the year of the restoration of the plunder of what we were robbed of. And so, Father God, I just pray that over Rachel Bruno right now. I just pray for 2022 to be the restoration of the plunder for her, Father God, and um, the release of this book, just everything to massively flourish. Father God, we ask that this book take wings and just absolutely ripple out to um, this whole country this whole country selling just millions of copies. Father God, we just ask that the book will be anointed, a high calling and a high purpose. And so thank you for this tremendous, courageous, bold warrior. And we just pray all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.
All right, beautiful ladies. Amen. Thank you so much for tuning in um, into our Fear into Faith, where we're going to have every Monday, we're going to be sharing stories of women like Rachel, who have walked through some pretty fearful things and been able to shift into faith uh, and stay in their faith, surrender to God and how, um, and how they got through all of it. So thank you, Rachel, for tuning in. Ladies, you're amazing. And we will see you next week. Bye. Thank you so much. Bye. <laughs>